about a year or so ago, uh, Pastor Gio and I decided to go visit his other church. It was a big church in another city um, because they had a really awesome evening service. And at that time, we were thinking about starting an evening service, which we ended up doing in January uh, of this year, our 5 o'clock service, which is incredible. If you haven't seen it, you've got to check it out sometime. Um, but uh, right now, it's like our fastest growing um, service. It's incredible. But that time, we were just learning, right? So we wanted to go and learn uh, what it takes to start a really awesome evening service. And so we went to this church that we had heard about. It's a great big church. Um, and we'd never been before. And when we showed up, we realized that they were right in the middle of a pastoral search. And so their lead pastor had gone away for some reason. And um, they were searching for a new one now. And um, they were well into the process because there was, uh, there was kind of a live audition happening. When we, when we got there, the lead candidate for the job was preaching the sermon that night, like do or die, live audition moment. And so I got really excited. It was like watching your favorite reality TV show, you know, like in real time. Like, will he get the roast? Like, you know, like all these questions. Like you're seeing real life unfold in front of you, like a, a man's livelihoods on the line and the church's future is on the line. It was, it was just pregnant with, with tension. It was, it was awesome. And then he stood up to preach, the guy stood up to preach, and my first impression, I'm not going to lie, my first impression was, dang, because he, I got to say, I don't mean this, I don't mean this weird, he looked really good. Like, he looked really good. He's a handsome guy. He'd been in the gym, like, uh, chiseled uh, jawline and, and just, uh, you know, uh, just a good-looking good looking fellow, well-dressed, had a tattoo sleeve down his left arm. And I thought to myself, and I saw that, I said, he's got the job. There's no question. He's going to get the job. He doesn't even have to say anything. Like, dude, just don't open your mouth. You'll get the job, you know? And then he got up there and he started talking and he showed pictures of his wife and kids and his wife was gorgeous and his kids looked perfect. And then he said, I thought this was a smooth play. He said, oh, we just found out we're expecting our third. My wife's pregnant with our third child. I was like, that's cool. Like, that's really smooth that you would do that at your audition. Like, how can they turn you down now? You know, you got a third mouth to feed. You know what I'm saying? And so, uh, so he threw that in there. And then he proceeded to preach like a very generic, very safe sermon on John 3.16 on the love of God and I'll be honest, I was bored, um, but I got it. I understood his choice. Because why, why would you preach an edgy sermon if you have a sleeve tattoo? Just let that do the talking. You know what I mean? Like, I can't get away with a boring sermon like that because I'm, I'm this. But the, he had, like, a sleeve tattoo. Like, let that be the edge and just, you know, play it safe, which he did until the very end of his sermon, the third act, if you will, of his sermon, and he was time to bring it home. And I'm rarely surprised by what I see in sermons anymore because I've seen a million of them. I'm a student of preaching. And, and he surprised me, though, because he opened up a laptop that was on the stage with him, and he hit the space bar. And then a song started to play. It was Coldplay's Fix You. I did not like where this was going. My thought was, dude, why? You already had the job. <laughs> why swing for the fences at this point? But he started talking over the music, telling a story about a train drawbridge operator who had a son, his only son who he loved, and his son went to work with his dad every day to watch his daddy raise the bridge and lower the bridge for oncoming trains. But one day, when the father was in the control room getting ready to lower the bridge for the train to pass by, 
the son was playing on the tracks, and he got stuck on the tracks. And by the time the father realized the son was stuck on the tracks, he only had time to do one of two things. He could rush out of the control room and save his son from the oncoming train and allow the train with hundreds of unsuspecting passengers to plunge into the water below. Or, or the father could stay in the control room, lower the bridge, allow the train to kill his son, send the passengers to freedom and safety. At this point in the sermon, Giovanna leaned over to me and said, what is he doing? And I wanted to say something, but I couldn't. I was mortified. I was just mortified. And then he proceeded to say, this, this is how God loves us. This is how much God loves us. That this father knew what he had to do, lowered the bridge, wept for his son. But by the time the train came Past the control station, though he was weeping, he smiled because he knew their lives had been saved. And he, he waved at them, weeping and smiling at the same time. And I sat there with this look on my face for about five minutes. I thought three things. I thought, first of all, I'll never hear that song the same again. He has ruined Coldplay for me. The second thing I thought. That's the most mortifying thing I've ever heard in a church or anywhere in my life, that story. The third thing I thought was, dude, just blew it, man. How are you going to feed your family now? That's what I was thinking. Like, you just blew it. You had it and you blew it. But guess what? He got the job anyway. He got the job. They hired him in spite of that confusing, troubling story of God's love, I guess, or whatever that was in that story. You know what I always think of when I hear about stories like this or I hear about things like this happening in church? I don't think of the hardcore Christians who kind of go, hmm, that was an off day, I guess. Or, hmm, that, was, that one wasn't for me, you know, like some of y'all do after my sermons. I think, about, I think about the newcomers. I think about people that were there for the first time. Maybe that was their first time in church ever or in a very long time. And I wonder to myself, what does that person go home thinking we think about God? What do they go home thinking we believe to be true about God? Now, there were some theological truths in that story. There were some apt analogies to the cross in that story. I get that part. But the sheer image of God simultaneously weeping and smiling and waving with his son dead on the, on, on the tracks was troubling enough to overshadow any truth that was in that story. We give people sometimes the impression that God is like bipolar at best and a child abuser or homicidal at worst, you know? We give some people sometimes uh, uh, some troubling, confusing images of God, as if God somehow is reactive toward us. Like God is, doesn't have a plan. He's not really in control. He's just kind of reactive to our behavior, including our bad behavior. And that's just kind of, that's a, a wrong image. That's kind of a heretical image that we give of God, that he's just eager to punish, eager for someone to pay the price. Now, that's one side of the story I want you to hold on to today. 
Because the other side of the coin is just as troubling. This is where most of us are, my sense is. Most of us have walked away from churches where they told stories like the train bridge operator story. Most of us have experienced that brand of Christianity and we rejected it for some reason. It didn't resonate with us, we found it troubling. And we maybe went around not going to church for several years or whatever and found the story or however that looks for you. Most of us are not in that realm of thinking about God. But what many of us have done, let's be honest, what many of us have done has taken that confusing, reactive, semi-impulsive, harsh view of God where someone always ends up punished or dead and we have let the pendulum swing so far in the opposite direction that we've created a heresy of our own where God is never disappointed, God is never upset, God is never uh, reacting to our sin in any way, that God is just kind of, for us, on this side of things, God is kind of like a cool dad. You know what I'm saying? Over here you got abusive father. Over here you got cool dad. Any cool dads in the house? It's great to be a cool dad with your dad bod and everybody hashtags you on Facebook. You know, like, it's great to be a cool dad with your best friends with your kids. It's like the best thing ever. We, we overcorrect with the way we look at the fatherhood of God sometimes. We make him look soft because we don't want people thinking God's a maniac. So we make him sound like cool dad. Cool dad just wants his kids to like him. So if your life's a mess, he laughs about it. <laughs> That's hilarious. You're a mess. I am too. I'm a mess too. Let's be a mess together, you know. You don't take anything seriously. You don't take the Bible seriously. Whatever, neither do I. Just have fun, you know. You're spending all your money on yourself. Who doesn't? You're sleeping with your girlfriend. Who hasn't? I don't mean you're, everybody is with your girl. Anyway, that's not what I mean. I just mean we all make mistakes. So it's cool. I'm cool, Dad, you know. That's, I think, somehow how we think about God and thinking about God that way as opposed to this other crazy way is no better because it affects everything, especially our parenting styles, right? Now, a lot of us are, are struggling to raise our kids. We don't know why our kids aren't obedient. We don't know why our kids are getting into trouble making selfish choices, right? Now, those of us that are 35 and older, like myself and like, some of y'all, uh, this, is, this is our youngest service, but not today because our high schoolers are all on retreat. So y'all are older per capita or whatever. On your mean average age is older than it normally uh, would be today. But if you're over 35, you probably grew up with parents who were harder on you than you are on your kids or than you will be when you have kids, right? So there was a different style of parenting if you're 35 or older. And I, you know, I don't know where it came from. I just know I got a lot of whoopings. That's all I know. I know my sister and I, we, she got spankings and I got whoopings. And I got more whoopings than she got spankings. And I'm not bitter about it or anything, so it's fine. But whatever, you know, like I just, I just know punishment was a daily reality in my life. Punishment. And we, in our cool dad era, we look back on those times, we call that abuse, like, uh, you know, across the board, although I was not abused. <laughs> I was not abused. I was disciplined corporally. Is that what you call it? <laughs> I was punished um, physically, and I didn't like it. I didn't think he was my friend, my dad, when he 
whooped me, you know. When they, they put my sister in timeout, we'd send me to my room, whatever. Like, we got all those things too, grounding and all that. Uh, grounding didn't work on me after the advent of the Nintendo. However, uh, that was not so much a punishment as they thought. And so uh, I got punished for things. So did my sister. And we didn't like it at first. But listen, I know now the reason why they punished us or disciplined us was for our training. It was for our good. It was so that we would grow up knowing how to be obedient toward our authorities, how to do work we don't feel like doing, how to follow rules we don't really enjoy following. So my parents did what they did because they cared less about gaining our approval than they cared about shaping our character. And I love them for that. Now, I love them for that now. I did not appreciate it then, however. But a lot of us parents today are struggling because we're not, we don't, we don't want to carry that forward because it wasn't pleasant. And we don't want our kids to think unpleasant things about us. And y'all just forgive the broad strokes here. I know not everybody falls into this uh, category, but if you're a parent, you need to know that your first job is not to be your kid's friend. You are not their friend. Your first job is to be an authority figure, a leader, a disciplinarian when necessary, especially when they get off the, the path they should be on, when, when, when they are disobedient willfully, when they're not doing what they should do. And I'm not telling you how to punish your kids. I don't, your theory can be your philosophy, whatever. I'm just telling you, you better be punishing your kids when, when those things happen. Otherwise, you're going to create bigger problems for yourself than, um, than you have now if you value friendship with them over uh, true fatherhood or motherhood relationship with them. Now, the reason I say all of that is to say when we think about God, everything else in our lives is shaped by that, by the way we think about God. If you think about him as this strangely uh, impulsive, uh, um, um, bloodthirsty, um, uh, harsh father figure, then that's going to be how you look at life. On the other hand, if you think of him as cool dad, where nothing's ever wrong and everything's pretty much okay, there are going to be some consequences there as well. What I'm saying is that the Bible, Old and New Testament, especially New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, is trying to help us see God as a father, not cool dad, not abusive father figure, but as a good father. And like any good father, he is proactive toward us, not reactive against us. He knows we're going to mess up and he's ready to deal with us. When we do, it doesn't catch him off guard. He doesn't have to be impulsive in his response. He's assertive without being abusive. And that's the idea the author of Hebrews has been trying to convey to us for eight weeks now and 12 chapters, and we're going to wrap up this series today. If you would take your Bibles or your study guides out, um, the first part of today's scripture is going to be in your study guides. Um, I would prefer it if you had a, your own Bible with you. If you don't, no sweat, no judgment. If you can bring it next time, or if you don't have a Bible, pick one up at the Connect table for free after this service. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. Just a little Bible reading tip. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to go back 
and see what it's there for. You get it? Uh, my old seminary professor used to say that, but you need to go back and understand why that word is there. What is it connecting? This chapter 2. Chapter 11 is this list of heroes of faith, right? So you've got um, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Sarah, by faith. You've got all of these stories of faith from the Old Testament. That's the cloud of witnesses that he's talking about here. And it's not so much like the, the saints in heaven are forming a cloud around you and cheering you on. That's how I've heard it before. It's not so much that. It's cool if you think about it that way. But it's really about the precedent of response to God's grace that people have had before us. The precedent of faith set before us. The standard of faith set before it that, that we can live up to. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, I think. Um, there's like uh, so many Christian cliches in this passage that if you're a church kid like me, you grew up in church and you've been in church your whole life, like this passage just reads like a cliche machine, man, from the cloud of witnesses to running the race with perseverance to don't lose heart to the pioneer and perfecter of faith. All of that stuff has been on a Christian t-shirt at some point in the last uh, 20 years. You know what I mean? And so there's all kinds of cliches there. And if you're not careful, these very familiar passages can lose their power because we kind of make it into something that it was never intended to be. And this was never intended to be a series of touchy-feely cliches. That is not what this author is saying. This is not sunshine and rainbow stuff here. In fact, if you just detach yourself from your familiarity with a passage like this, you will see that this is a rather dark set of verses. He is being fairly ominous because what's he saying? He's saying you're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to endure. Now, you know those two words. If you have to persevere something, what does that mean? It means that that thing is what? Hard. Unpleasant, painful. If you have to endure something, if you're in a marriage and you're enduring your marriage, right, what kind of marriage do you have? <laughs> hard, hard marriage, right? Some of y'all are like, yeah, I feel you. So it's, uh, that's kind of the, the, the message he's sending is that, look, Christians, even early Christians, first or second generation Christians, it's going to be hard. And not just because of persecutions from the outside. It's going to be hard because you're still broken. You're still sinful. You're still struggling in your sin. He's saying following Jesus won't make your life any easier. Congratulations on becoming Christians. Now get ready for some pain. He assumes Christians are going to suffer. All right? Y'all hold on to that thought. I'm going to read the next part of this. This is not in your study guides because I was lazy and slothful this week and I missed the mark and I'm a sinner. And so if you could just want to follow along on the screens, uh, this is verse 4 through verse 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's comparing us to Jesus. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, 
Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us as we res- and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, these are the human fathers, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. These are the passages of Scripture that many preachers are inclined to just skip over. <laughs> Can we just stick to the nice parts? <laughs> Can we just talk about the part where nobody suffers and there's no pain so more people will join my church and fill out commitment cards and all this stuff? You know, like, can, can we just keep it light and fluffy? And really, stuff like this comes as a big surprise to non-religious people. If you're non-religious and you're here like for the first time and you've only heard Christians talk about Christianity, this will probably surprise you that this is in the New Testament. Because all you've heard from Christians is that following Jesus makes you happy. All you've seen from us, peripherally speaking, or from the outside looking in, is that following Jesus makes your life easier, (laughs) happier, more fulfilling, more manageable, And we have all kinds of cliches that we put around that idea, do we not? I mean, we have T-shirts that say, I'm too blessed to be depressed and smile, God loves you. As if when God loves you and you're in a relationship with God, you can do nothing but smile. You're not allowed to be sad. And as if when you are blessed by God, you can't simultaneously be depressed at the same time. I am under no illusions that some of you are faithful Christians and deeply depressed. But we don't give the world that impression, do we? Too often, I think, going to church feels strangely fake and foreign to people who live in the real world. I think Christians sometimes seem oddly nice to the point of being inauthentic, borderline Stepford wife material. When they look at us and we've got that smile on our faces, welcome, welcome, welcome. And we have that tone of voice, just slightly robotic. You know, everyone knows something's off, like there's some sinister plot at work, like they're just waiting to see who the puppet master is, you know, like and what happens, why aren't we brainwashed, that kind of thing. That false happiness sends the message that we expect all Christians to be happy all the time. You know what else it does is it makes people who are trying to be Christians when they go through seasons of pain and unhappiness feel like maybe they're not doing it right or maybe God's not real at all. Because the stuff I've been told is doesn't seem to be real for me. When you got a room full of people like this one, look around. All you'll see is a room full of misfits and screw-ups. That's what we are. In light of God's glory and perfection, all of us have our issues. None of us is 100% happy. None of us is 100% together. You know, we've all got 
marriage problems, relationship problems, money problems, addictions, insecurities, and doubts. And so far be it from us to pretend like everything's all right. And I am sort of proud, if I'll say this part, I'm sort of proud of the story from the beginning, I think, for setting a different expectation. I don't think we have the same expectation of perfection. I think some of y'all don't feel so pressured to pretend when you walk through these doors. I think some of y'all know it's okay to be depressed. Some of y'all are well aware that one in five people in this room are struggling with depression. One in four are struggling with some kind of addiction. Well aware that the ratios that apply to the world outside also apply to this world inside. Because a relationship with Jesus doesn't take away your suffering. A relationship with Jesus doesn't prevent your pain. In fact, sometimes your life with Jesus can feel more painful than before. More broken sometimes. And I'm glad we have a culture where it's okay to not be okay. We still have work to do. We still have work to do. But generally speaking, we have a culture that's okay not to be okay. Sometimes I think we have a little bit too much of that. Sometimes I see your lives on social media and the things you brag about or are not ashamed of, and I think, why did you friend your pastor? I, I'm just curious, like, why? Why are you friending me? Why are you letting me follow you? Like, don't you know the accountability is coming? Or at least, or at least silent secret judgment of you is coming. You know what I mean? Like, uh, why? You know, uh, but, but some, sometimes we are a little too free with that, and, and that's okay, because listen, we are not okay. And the first Christians were not okay, even though they knew Jesus personally, some of them, some of them touched him, physically touched him when he walked the earth, and still they were not okay. They still struggled with sin, even though they had faith, they still dealt with their addictions and their consequences of their sins, even though they went to church. People still judged them for being Christians, made fun of them, mocked and laughed at them for being Christians, even though they knew Jesus, it must have bothered them. Their lives were hard. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to assure them that when the lights go out, I'm just kidding, that would have been great though. Uh, <laughs> to assure them that that's how it's supposed to work. Suffering is to be expected when you follow Jesus. Life with Jesus is no easier than life without him, which I know must, for some of you, be begging the question, <laughs> what am I doing here? Because we are a me-first culture, and when we commit to something like church, we need to know how it benefits us, right? Some churches have caved to that and said, well, it benefits you by giving you more happiness and, and a greater whatever. Like, and, and I'm not saying that today. I'm saying it's going to hurt. So why, why give Jesus your life if it doesn't make your life any easier or any happier? Verse 10 I think clears us up. Chapter 12, verse 10. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Listen, God has a much greater plan for you than mere temporary happiness. God has a much greater purpose in mind for your life than numb comfort. He created you to be fully alive fully aware of the purpose and holiness your life can hold. Your life has a greater purpose than just pain-free convenience. And so Jesus isn't going to take away the pain or take away the suffering. Jesus will retrain your mind to interpret your pain differently, to see the stuff you go through through a different lens. 
to stop complaining about it or being victimized by it and to understand that God will use pain, seasons of suffering, to bring about new, deeper holiness. The holiness. Now, holiness just means being like God, loving with the heart of God. Holiness is the reason you were created. Now, that is what God is like. Not this crazy, weepy, smiley guy and not this cool dad guy. God is somewhere in the middle like a good father. God is more concerned about the formation of your character than your momentary happiness. And so he uses the seasons of suffering you go through to shape you. And hear me when I tell you, I am not saying he sends you the suffering like, like, like wrath raining down from heaven. You, you know my heart by now but after Harvey. I told y'all God I don't think God sent Harvey, but did God use Harvey to shape the character of our city a little bit? Of course. Now, I'm not saying God sends suffering like a hurricane or a broken marriage or an asinine call to the bullpen in the ninth inning of a tie game in the World Series. I'm not saying any of that. Because we can't say with any certainty why bad things happen, but when we have faith, we know, we know that God uses every bad thing that comes our way to shape us a little more, to discipline us, to train us up. Every season of suffering you go through, every moment of pain, every stupid choice you make and the consequences you have to pay afterward, he uses that to discipline you. He can use that to shape your character. This is the God the New Testament speaks of. And when you, when you choose to follow Jesus, you get to know him as your father a little bit more. And you learn to trust him more and to know him more. And life will still hurt. But he will train you through that pain. He will bring something out of you you didn't know was there. Talk to any faithful person who's gone through a season of doubt or despair or pain. And they will tell you it was during that season that I grew the most. When hard times come your way, don't, don't just be victimized by it. Don't point fingers at God or your parents or your spouse or yourself. Well, it's your fault or it's my fault or whatever. Don't fall prey to that. Just get on your knees and pray, Lord, what are you showing me here? What can you teach me through this? Lord, I submit myself to you through this season of pain, aware that you're with me in this, training me, showing me, raising me up to be the holy man or the holy woman of God that I can be. So seasons of pain, they don't mean God's angry at you if you're going through something right now. Doesn't mean God's disappointed with you. Doesn't mean that he's just punishing you arbitrarily. But he's not passive either. He may not have sent the storm, but man, he can enter the storm and use it. Use it to shape you. Because he's not a cool dad, he's a good father who cares more about your holiness than your happiness and your character than your comfort. Sometimes God's love will sting you a little. Sometimes it will feel like punishment, and you may not like it at first. But over time, as the writer of Hebrews says, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those whom he has trained. So I'm going to close with this and just ask you, at the end of this eight-week series on Hebrews, I just want to boil it down to one thing. Because at the beginning of this passage, it says, cast off whatever hindrances stand in your way. Cast off whatever sins are roadblocks to your path toward holiness. And I just want to, I don't want to blow your mind by making a list of hindrances and sins, but I know we all have one thing. One thing. Standing in our way. Unforgiveness in a marriage. 
resentment, a broken heart. Some of us have other kinds of cards on the table. My one thing I've been praying a lot about it this week is fear. I don't fear spiders or snakes so much. I do fear spiders and snakes. That's a lie. I can't lie to church. I, it's not about that kind of fear. I'm afraid of loss. I'm afraid of vulnerability. I'm afraid of being sick. I'm afraid of poverty. Maybe I grew up in some poverty and not having stuff. And now that I don't live in poverty, I'm afraid of being without, you know. And so I get a little too attached to security. And that fear, man, I know God needs to deal with it. I'm afraid of how he's going to deal with it, which I guess is the whole point of him needing to deal with it. But, uh, but I know he needs to deal with it, and I know it might hurt a little bit, but I know I will be better for it when I've been made right, when I've been through the discipline of God, trained even through pain. What is the one thing standing in the way of your God-given purpose to become a holy daughter, a holy son of God. I'm just going to ask you to take that one thing seriously. I'm going to say two things about it. First, don't keep that to yourself. This week, share that one thing with somebody that you trust, whether it's your spouse, if you're lucky enough to have a spouse who loves Jesus, or a friend, or a pastor, somebody in your small group, your chapter, like share that one thing that's holding you back. We've all got the one thing, so don't be ashamed. Share it. And in this moment, I just want you to be real about that one thing with God. That's all I'm going to ask. As Gio leads us through this communion time, just, I'm just asking you to be real about this with God and to bring it, even if it's just in your heart, to bring it forward to the communion table and to be honest with God about this one thing and ask him for your help, training you to set you free.